Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 22 of Authors on a Podcast Talking Books. I'm your host, David Walters. Today I have the pleasure of chatting with actor and fantasy author Luke Arnold. Luke is a graduate from the Western Australian Academy of Performing Arts. He began his acting career with Australian television, starring in the series McLeod's Daughters, Rush, Rescue, Special Ops, City Homicide, and Steven Spielberg's The Pacific. His first feature film role was the lead in Broken Hill, in which he had the opportunity to work with Academy Award winner Timothy Hutton from shows such as Leverage and The Haunting of Hill House, Spy Kids star Alex Vega, and fellow Aussie Reese Wakefield. The film was produced by Chris Wyatt, who also did Napoleon Dynamite, and Julia Ryan, who did Ten Canoes and Red Dog. Broken Hill is a film about an Australian high school boy with big dreams of leaving the remote outback and becoming a classical musician, and it won a collection of international festival awards. Following Broken Hill, Arnold starred in The Tunnel, which is a thriller set in the dark tunnels of the Australian subway system. Luke was also the lead in the 2011 Australian comedy Dealing with Destiny and returned to Italy to star in the thriller Murder in the Dark. If you're like me, you know Luke best from the hit star series Black Sails, where he played John Silver from 2014 to 2017 alongside the amazing Toby Stevens. His debut fantasy novel, The Last Mile in Center City, which is the Fetch Phillips Archives number one, was just released by Orbit Books in the U.S. on February 25th. But without further ado, and chance to catch my breath, ladies and gentlemen, Luke Arnold. Thank you so much for having me. Good to be chatting. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, and thanks for that. Uh, yeah, very uh, detailed lead up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, typically I go off of Goodreads for it, and it's usually a little bit shorter. But man, I had to IMDb it for this one. So. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! So, uh, so you had a pretty good day today. I know it's only about five o'clock where you're at, so I'm sure it's still beautiful and sunny outside. Uh, well, except for it's, I'm in LA at the moment, and yeah, it's strangely kind of gloomy and rainy here, kind of all week. Um, but I am, you know, at the moment I'm over here, partly, you know, working on some writing projects, uh, you know, occasionally doing some auditions and things. So it wasn't a bad day to get a little work done. So I'm mostly being at home drinking coffee. Uh, you know, typing away at the laptop, and um, yeah, not a bad day. That doesn't sound too bad. Doesn't sound too bad. So, so I have to ask. So, uh, on Twitter a couple of days ago, you said that uh, you went to buy toilet paper in, in LA, and you were worried that uh, they would think that you were adding it to your stockpile because of your accent. Is that? Uh, yeah, is that, is that really hold true? <laughs> I don't know. If you, I don't know if you've seen, but in Australia right now, the way Australia's people in Australia have decided to react to the coronavirus is to start hoarding toilet paper of all things. And I guess it's the thing that, you know, one person does it and then everyone else panics. So there's been a big toilet paper shortage and there's been fights in supermarkets about it. It's been kind of an embarrassing, strange, you know, way for Australia to be shown to the world. But um, yeah, so it did make me conscious of that when I had to go get some loo roll for myself. <laughs> yeah, I've, uh, you know, of course I've seen it all over, you know, Twitter and Facebook with all the memes yeah. with, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger shooting toilet paper rolls out of a giant gun oh, yeah. and stuff. So. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. I actually wrote a, was kind of writing a, a screenplay years ago that was about a kind of apocalyptic event in Australia that it was kind of the breakdown of society of when people just started 
taking water and hoarding water in just that one thing alone, the way it kind of kicked off and turned everyone against each other. Uh, and it looks like maybe toilet paper is the secret to, you know, the collapse of society in Australia. <laughs> uh, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's slowly turning into a, to a Mad Max film, you know, at this point, everybody's going to be, you know, looking for that, that, uh, that nice, vehicle yeah. to, to get through the desert and <laughs> that's it we thought it was going to be gasoline but yeah. it's going to be you know a couple of rolls of double ply out in the <laughs> desert somewhere it's uh it's really strange but and it's it is just funny how people react to these kind of things i you know and hopefully because depending on when bad things happen people seem to react differently and i've i've been kind of lucky enough to you know, in, in some ways to be in some areas after either natural disasters, which tend to unite people. Mm-hmm. But then I find if you're in war zones, anytime where there's human on human violence in any way, you know, there's no real coming together of community in those places. It's a much darker thing. And the unfortunate thing is when you get to these kind of pandemics, you know, if you can fear other people and they can be the ones bringing this thing to your doorstep, it, it, looks like it's not going to bring out the best in us where these are the kind of things you hope, you know, everyone realizes that we're all better off. We work together and have some empathy and sympathy for each other. And unfortunately there are enough of us who just want to, you know, get selfish and barricade their doors and get their shotguns. And um, it feels like, you know, yeah, in these situations, it might not be the, the virus that kills us, but the way we decide to react to it in our countries and communities. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, in any post-apocalyptic, uh, well, I say any, but a majority of them, you know, people are always worried about the creatures or the virus or something, but it's really each other. That's the interesting thing working in like, you know, fantasy and sci-fi and speculative fiction, you know, or dystopian stories. It's like, you know, more and more you do these things that seem so far in the distance before. And over the last couple of years, like, it's like, oh, it's, things don't seem so speculative anymore. Like you can really look around us and see how we're choosing to react to the potential world ending events that are just over the horizon. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so, so to get something, I guess a little bit uh, more happy. <laughs> yes, yeah. Let's, 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 I mean, we're, we're going to start going towards my book, which is not that the most cheerful book in the world, but yeah, we'll, we'll try and find some laughs for a bit before that. There you go. Um, so, so tell me a little bit about growing up, uh, you know, going through school and any hobbies you had outside of school. Yeah, right. So I grew up in the Adelaide Hills of, uh, Australia, which is, was a real kind of like, there was a kind of, you know, that Spielberg quality to it, I guess, where we were a pretty safe little part, very suburban, but with enough kind of bush around that you could go exploring, build cubby houses, you know, ride your bike down to the local store, hire a video game and get a bunch of sweets and bring them back home. It was kind of a great way to do the kind of those primary school years. Um, and so during that time, it was kind of that. It was that real kind of exploring and, and yeah, definitely lots of video games is kind of the main little source of interaction, the oh, no, main little source of kind of entertainment that really focused on. But then it was, yeah, that kind of running off and making up stories and exploring the bush around where we were. And then as I got into high school, um, it was always pretty much I felt very much, it was hard to think of hobbies that weren't, that didn't involve just kind of being creative, that very much it was about writing things, performing, writing 
plays and things and making them and putting them on with friends. So kind of from the beginning of high school, that's where most of my time went, that I, um, yeah, that kind of was writing in school and then writing things around school with friends that, yeah, you know, I got very heavily involved in any extracurricular creative activity that would have me. I got you. I got you. Um, so what sort of work were you in, I guess, prior to acting or writing? Did you, uh, did you hold any, you know, did, were you a convenience store clerk? Did, did you work as a waiter anywhere or did you kind of just go through school? And then as you got through school, you kind of, I guess, started getting acting gigs. Well, so from 14, I think even before, actually, and yeah, from about 14, which is kind of even before you're legally allowed to work in Australia, I think 14 or nine months with the age, uh, me and my friend had our own business as comedy magicians, which is, you know, obviously the coolest job you can imagine uh, in your high school years. Um, but so we kind of started for friends and family doing, you know, like, at doing magic and shows at, at, at birthday parties and events. Then, you know how like Burger King does their party kids' parties on the weekend? We got that job. And often they're done by the same people who work at Burger King, but then they do a bit of that. We were like exclusively the party guys, and we did that until we then really went off on our own. And we were like making bank. Like we do like six or more kids' parties on a weekend, like go from place to place. Um, you know, first at Burger King, but then we'd always get tipped extra. But then we, you know, we're doing like this kind of cash in hand, like party business um, that we were like making really good money in a kind of, and especially then when you get into doing theater or any kind of performance later, there's no tougher audience than a bunch of kids, you know, full of sugar, <laughs> you know, at a party on a weekend. So I think it was really good training for all the performance stuff that came after. Um, and so that kind of carried me through most of high school really, um, until then and then afterwards. And I kind of directly went from, I was still at high school when I got my first job in the film industry, which was working as assistant to the Swordmaster on the Peter Pan movie they shot in Australia with Jason Isaacs, you know, who played like Lucius Malfoy in the Harry Potter films and a bunch of other great roles um, and all kinds of incredible actors on that. And so I was choreographing and choreographing sword fights, teaching that to the actors and the stunties, um, working directly with kind of this um, kind of the head of the stunt department and the director on putting things together and working with the actors. It was a really amazing thing to be doing while I was still meant to be at high school, uh, which I just stopped going to and, you know, sent all my final assignments in via email from near the film set. Um, and then that pretty much from that, that carried me into the next year just, and then I had a few months in between uh, kind of preparing to get to drama school, which I got into. And, you know, and look, after, between then drama school and getting, you know, being able to live off being an actor, I did lots of jobs. Um, but they were all just kind of casual things to fill in the gap till I could, you know, make it stick. I gotcha. So so would you say that the, uh, the Burger King gig was your craziest job you had in between that and acting? Or was there another one that, like, really stands out? Oh, look, I think... <laughs> Definitely the stuff that really served me would have been in those years between finishing drama school and being like an actor who could, you know, pay all my bills just from acting. Mm -hmm. And it was, I mean, it was all kinds of dumb stuff, like, you know, but both like, you know, things like building kitchens, doing like tiling roofs in the middle of summer. Um, then all those weird performance ones you get, like sometimes you'd be like fake paparazzi at like a, at events. And when people are rocking up, you're like, Hey, look over here, you know, and, <laughs> And there's no film in the camera, but it's just like being like given some vibe 
Oh, then, and I was doing like still walking and stuff for a bit. Like one time be like, you know, where you look like you're a jockey on an emu with long legs, like really dumb stuff that never really wanted to do. But I also don't want to get a real job because the moment an audition comes in, you want to drop everything for it. Well, the moment you get a job, you want to leave it all behind. So it was any job that I could do that didn't re- require any commitment, which usually meant you get the jobs that no one wanted to do. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's the same thing here. I mean, you know, nobody wants to, you know, go help build a home like in the middle of July or yeah. do landscaping or anything like that because it's, That's it's it. brutal. <laughs> yeah, digging holes in some like a Sydney summer was just – like I did lots of bad things, but that was the one that I was always, you know, and just like about to pass out. You know, yeah. you're getting up at the crack of dawn to go out and start it before the sun hits, but it still gets really hot. It's like, this is not, this wasn't the plan. Yeah. And, and you really, <laughs> I think I probably did some of my best auditions then because if you get a chance to get a job that stops you having to do that, it's like, yes, please. <laughs> Whatever you want me to do that isn't this, I'll take it. <laughs> you just you just kind of hope that you don't go in and overact, right? <laughs> yeah, that's it. You come in too desperate. To yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's a sweet spot there of not caring too much, but actually caring enough to do the work on something that, you know, the, the, this thing is that you do it for long enough and you get a bit jaded, it can sometimes be harder to get those, um, you know, those roles that are just kind of paying the bills and filling it in between because, you know, when you've got to play amazing characters and, and done really satisfying jobs, it can sometimes be hard to get your mind to focus on the things that don't, you know, creatively fulfill you in the same way. Yeah, I gotcha. Um, so that kind of leads me to the next question. So tell me what it was like on the set of Black Sails. <laughs> It's, it's funny, I just caught up with a couple of actors from it uh, two days ago, Luke Roberts and Tom Hopper, and we were there with someone who, you know, seen some of the show but hadn't heard us waffle on about it for hours like we love to do. It was the greatest. It it really was, other than a bit of a – I don't think anyone knew what the show was going to be or could be at the beginning. And it's so big that I think – all that's happening at the beginning of the show is you're just trying to go like, okay, we hope the ships don't fall over. We hope, you know, we, we kind of know like what accents are we doing? What tone is this thing? And it takes a while for that all to come together and meld. But I mean, even at the beginning it was amazing because you're just like, okay, we've got giant pirate ships. We've got a big pirate town. We've got a bunch of really dedicated, talented actors coming together. And then as we went on, and the kind of writers got to know the actors more and we started talking about what's really going on in the show, what's kind of bubbling beneath these characters and understanding more than what you might get from the show at first glance. I think we all saw an opportunity to do something really special. And what happened is that partly from the fact we were so isolated, which does make it a bit easier sometimes on these longer jobs to really dig in, but also the fact that we had writers that wanted to do something really special and that, you know, the kind of writers who will not sleep because trying to crack the thematical idea of what they're exploring or make sure that, you know, the characters are really living up to what they're about. You know, you've got those guys working and then a bunch of actors who were obsessed with what they could do with these roles and what this show could be. And I mean, we would, both on set and around, we were obsessive and we'd spend so much time discussing how we might play a scene, where a character might go, how to wring the most out of a little moment. 
Um, and that kind of passion for the craft permeated through everyone, through the directors, through the stunties, um, through the art department, the costume. I really, you don't always get it, but it really felt like this was a show where everyone was turning up every day to make the best show on television. And I do think sometimes we fucking were. Like it just, we did some incredible stuff on that uh, that only works when you've got pressure from all sides trying to make this diamond. So, yeah, so that's the best. You know, it was wild and it was brutal and we were really sore. And so even though it was the best job ever, we all loved each other when it's it came to the point where we were talking about, you know, the fourth season being the last one, definitely for the actors, but for a lot of crew, I think we were like, yeah, that's that's a good idea because I don't know if we'll survive another round of this. Um, but the thing I remember most is that passion from everyone. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah, so so did you, uh, were, were you, I guess, told, did you have to read Treasure Island, like, to get into that John Silver role or – you know, because because that was what it's based on. You know, loosely based on, I guess. Um, yeah. Was that and like so, a was not, that like a requirement? Much, <laughs> yeah, not as much told to, but yes, I absolutely. I'd kind of read it at least once every season. You know, and then I had a, a kind of book where I made. Actually, that's what I did first of all. Is I actually went through the book and I kind of had two columns and I wrote down on one everything that other people say about silver, and on another side everything he says about himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're playing it duplicitous character like silver and one who, you know, um, Jim's, even Jim's ideas of silver change so much in the book. He thinks he's one thing then he sees is another and then he's charmed again. And so you've got all these, even just from Jim's point of view, you get contrasting ideas of who this man is. And from silver himself, he talks about himself in a very different way to everyone else. And so that was kind of my first work with it. And that just gave so much great, you know, just a great place to start with understanding that this guy could kind of be anyone, uh, depending on what the situation required and depending on who he was around. Um, and so, yeah, that was where I started. And, you know, for other people, they read, they went more to the historical side of things because there were people playing real pirates. So they'd obviously look to those very, you know, there's not a lot of true life, reliable accounts of pirates, but they probably lean more to that while I'd look more to Treasure Island. And then we all look to the, myriad of different thematical mythological pieces of literature out there that we knew the writers were working from i gotcha so uh i guess did you did you find yourself in some pretty amazing places where they shot um scenes or was it mostly i guess in the same sort of area yeah so we were in cape town in south africa for the entire thing and i'd say that you know 90% 90% was shot on sound stages. You know, we were never actually on the water. Um, and so, you know, that was all these, these kind of roving green screens on cranes that wherever you pointed the camera, the, 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 you know, these green screens would come in from all angles and fill in, you know, like cover up the township or the freeway or the airport and everything that was around us. Um, and but we did. There's like a maroon camp that comes in season three that was built actually out in the kind of the forest there. And pretty much it's for the last two episodes of season four, we went out to really into like the jungle and shot some stuff out there. But that's really the only. And you know we go down the beach, the real beach, a few times. Mm-hmm. But you know for most of the show, we're on these beautifully created sound stages that are a mixture of amazing craftsmen in Cape Town. 
and, you know, 11 teams of visual effects artists all around the world working at the top of their game. Yeah. That, that is, that's super impressive. I mean, cause you could not tell, you know, if, if you, if, I mean, if, I'm sure if you looked hard enough, you could be like, Oh, that's not real. But you know, it, it's just so amazing how visual effects artists work and how well they make everything look so real. Uh, cause I mean, it literally looks like you're, you know, coming off the ship onto the beach and into the town and then, you know, back, back out into the water and, uh, you know, back to the ship and waves are crashing and everything. It's just, it's phenomenal. It, it is incredible work from everyone. And just the minds who are able to see the set and imagine the, you know, the visual effects side and bring that stuff together is incredible. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think I'm putting anyone in the shit here, but I've, you know, talked to some visual effects artists who have been given awards for things you know, that worked on Black Sails as well as other shows that have been given more awards for the other shows. I think we did get the Emmy season three for The Storm, which is, like, absolutely deserving it. But who, at other times when they'd win over it, and would be kind of frustrated because they'd win it for things, you know, where you can obviously see where the visual effects are. And so that you can go, like, oh, that's really amazing. Where what happened in Black Sails, it's so seamless, and because it has to be. Yeah. And the fact that it never breaks down, that you can completely believe at this point, whether it's, you know, when we're dragging a shark into a rowboat so we can eat it or we're going into a storm or we're driving one ship on fire into another, it has to be so perfectly done. that. Um, but in some ways that makes it less spectacular if you're looking at what visual effects are being done in television. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. and every year it got a bit better, you know, like every year you go, oh, the waves are a little better. I go, oh, the, the sail team. Because you just have one team somewhere in the world who are just doing the sails. Yeah. And every year they're, you know, perfecting what they're doing and finding new ways to make it more realistic. So you just have these real expert teams working on the minutiae of creating that world. Yeah, and, I, you know, every year you go, oh, it can't get any better. And then it does. <laughs> and you're just it. like, how it, in the world is it possible? completely because you keep going well that's great that does everything and then you come back next time and also as well you just have to throw new challenges which was really there was a big jump like season one and two there were some big things but it was a lot kept around nasa and the main island there Mm -hmm. and we went back to season three and like in the first few episodes just crazy stuff happens one after the other it's a different new challenge that um and it was great that the writers proposed those ideas and that stars and everyone involved you know, forked out the money and the time to do something, you know, just do in almost every episode something that's never been done before. Yeah, absolutely. And for everybody listening that hasn't uh, taken a chance on Black Sales, it's on Hulu if you have a subscription, uh, the entire series is. So I definitely recommend you doing that. And I'll uh, definitely remind everybody at the end of the episode. But it's a phenomenal show. And it's it's phenomenally done. And Luke is in every episode, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am. There's, uh, yeah, it was. It's something I'm really proud of, and and also it's it's what's nice is it feels like there's almost more people watching it now than when it was on because I do think it's not the show that people anticipated it being at the beginning and maybe the way it was advertised in some ways. Mm-hmm. And so it's nice that word of mouth has been really great and lots more people have kind of discovered the show over the years. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, what, what really drew me into it was, well, first off, uh, Bear McCreary's music. Oh my mm-hmm. gosh. Like he, he is a mastermind. I love everything that he does, but that intro song, I mean, it just yeah. kind of gets the blood pumping. And, yeah, then you, and then you just drop yeah. right into it. I mean, it's, you know, mutiny and 
you know, murder. And it's just, it's amazing. So, and all a little bit off. And I think that was something that, you, you, you know, I think it, it was one of John Steinberg's rules in the writer's room that everyone had to have watched all of The Wire. And I do think there's something about, you know, if you've seen a bunch of police procedurals, you know, before you'd seen The Wire and you go in, you know, there's potentially a bit of a frustrating element to the beginning because you go like, as even some of the characters say, but, you know, that idea that you go, well, why don't you just knock the door down and go in? Like, you, you, know, you know what's going in there. And the fact that, like, oh, no, we're seeing what it takes to actually go through all the mundane bureaucracy of actually being a cop. And, you know, and that was kind of a bit of what happened with Black Sails is that you go, okay, you know, here's a big pirate show with Michael Bay's name on it and, like, okay, we're just going to run in there, right, and start blowing things up and go look for buried treasure. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like, this is actually an examination of both, you know, the realities of that time but then also, you know, taking it to some very different philosophical ideas rather than just giving you what you think you want, which is, you know, yeah, pirates swinging on ropes with daggers between their teeth, you know, hunting for treasure. Yeah. Yeah. And I know whenever, uh, you know, of course, Michael Bay's name's tied to something, everybody just thinks explosions. (laughs) That's it. And hey, it's great to have that. It's great that when you have his name, you know, the network's likely to give you those, you know, knows that what you're going into, that at some time you're going to ask for the explosions and for the VFX teams. And that's a really great thing to have. And it, but it's nice to balance that out. And I do think it's always more rewarding to watch something when it subverts your expectations and doesn't give you what you thought you wanted, but something actually more valuable by the end. Absolutely. All right, so uh, so now away from film and on to books. So uh, you said you wrote, I guess, a little bit in school. Um, but who, I guess, who was your influence? Who, uh, I guess, who did you read growing up that kind of uh, gave you the, the want to write? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I read a lot as a kid, but it, I think it was really Raymond Chandler's you know, Philip Marlowe detective stories that I guess maybe gave me the first push towards writing in the way that I am writing now. I, I think probably before that, I do think it was more comic books. I'm remembering now that I was reading a lot of comics, you know, from primary school. And that's first, there was a while there where I was kind of drawing and writing comics as my first, you know, creative stuff on my own. But then it really was going, once I started reading Chandler and some of those detective stories, which then led me to watching Bogart movies and all that stuff, um, I do think a lot of the stories I'd submit in, you know, English class and stuff started having a bit of a noir feel and, you know, I'd I'd borrow little bits from that world. Um, And then, and actually when it comes to, and and so then I think I just read more general stuff from there, and that probably influenced my reading more than, you know, fantasy. I, I read a little bit of Discworld stuff around that time that I think I got into because I played the played like the the, the Discworld games, and so then I was like, oh, they're cool. And that then I started reading some of those books. Um, but with fantasy, it never. I think I had a couple of instances with fantasy early on that were probably those kind of books that were the, you know, very kind of Tolkien-y knockoffs where you open it and it's just a bunch of made up places and names uh, that, 
don't do a lot. Then there's not a lot of help dropping you in there to this world. It assumes that you're just, you know, ready to write in. So I never really read much fantasy at that time. I think it started with Chandler, did those detective stories, and then started being handed books like I was reading Tom Robbins for a while there. Um, I know he was a writer I'd go to. It's so hard to think back to that time. No, you're good. But, yeah, it was kind of bits and pieces that I'd probably pick up from either like my dad or then some teachers that, you know, would start throwing books my way when they saw me as a bit of a reader. I gotcha. Yeah, I know uh, I know it's always <laughs> it's always tough remembering back, you know, because oh, yeah. you know, some, some people just go, like, it was this trilogy or it was this specific <laughs> author. And, you know, a lot of the fantasy authors I talk to, they always go back to Tolkien and – uh, some some back some back go back to Lewis and some go back mm-hmm. to um, you know so I guess some of the younger like uh, yourself I guess would look at Terry Pratchett and stuff like that especially the more like comedic style of writing um, yeah and and I always found with Pratchett as well that there were there there was some I loved but I I also even look it's, it's Discworld is amazing and Pratchett's an incredible writer but. I, there were ones that really stuck out. Like I remember Mort sticking out to me when I read them in order. The first ones were good and, you know, and maybe some of the early satire and stuff went over my head a bit and I was like, oh, this is okay. But it was the real, I think Mort was the first one that I, I really felt like it was about the character more than the satire, I guess, that that was what was rising to the top and I really latched onto that one. And so, and over the years I've always been a bit of that with the Discworld books where even when they're really funny, I – there are those ones, and Night's Watch was, I think, yeah, it was one that was just, like, I still love that um, because it did some incredible character work there amongst the satire, amongst the other, you know, social commentary and things. Um, yeah, those, those ones that feel more character-driven were what drew me in. But I always kind of picked and choose between a bunch of stuff, and I think a lot of those early high school years, if I think about it, were, you know, I was playing kind of more RPGs and things than I was devouring books at that time yeah no i <laughs> i understand you well from that standpoint because yeah. i mean when i was when i was like in elementary middle school you know it was like big when when harry potter was coming out so that kind of got me into reading because we had uh basically ar reading which basically we got points for certain books and the bigger the book the more yeah. points you got and you got prizes blah 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 but you know kind of when i got into high school it was really just video games and that kind of led me through most of high school, and then I started reading uh, more of like Stephen King, Dean Koontz, because uh, mm-hmm. my dad like kind of got me started in doing that. He was uh, working as a, uh, I guess I guess you'd call him a security guard, but basically a glorified security guard for um, the power company here in Alabama. Uh-huh. So he would go on storm duty when they had uh, hurricanes and so forth. So like he would go, he went to New Orleans when. Um, I guess when Rita hit and then wow. he went to uh, Orange, Texas uh, as well. So he would just like take you know bags of books with him and read them all and go, okay, you need to read these. You can skip this one. And, uh, and so that kind of got me back into reading. And then I just lost it in college and then got it yeah. back after I graduated. Because, I mean, when you go to college, like the last thing you're probably going to do is read. Now, not everybody will do that, but most people go yeah. and party and all stuff. So. Yes. See, I'm <laughs> bunch of that but i think the thing is as an actor the moment that turned up i mean just reading scripts all the time and whether that's for auditions or plays you know for me at drama school all you're doing is looking for scenes and plays all the time so i did do a bit of reading because i had another friend who was a big reader there and i I do think that helps which i just want to go back 
because it's funny that both you and I, I think, guess very influenced in those things we read because of our dads. And for me, it really was like there was something in that connection because, you know, I don't, I'm the eldest in my family, so I didn't have that older, older brother and I didn't really have – there weren't any – other kind of role models I had that would be the ones to go like, hey, you should give this a read. Mm -hmm. But my dad was the one, like my dad's a huge reader. And there was something about, I guess, those Chandler books that he enjoyed, but also I, they were very digestible for me. And then I guess there was something about, you know, the kind of masculine nature of them. You know, that's not, it's not uber masculine. I've never been one for like, you know, really any stories about people grabbing guns and going off or that, you know, military stuff has never really appealed to me. And there was something about the kind of romantic, strange, you know, m masculinity of those detective stories and of film noir that my dad loved that really appealed to me. And so, and then we, I could read those books and we could watch them when he, you know, like, on the, on the weekend, like late at night, he'd record those, some of those Bogart movies and a bunch of film noir stuff. And then we'd watch them on the weekend. And he'd tell you about all the actors at that time and the other things they were in. So for me, I'd, yeah, like it's so much of it has to do with the fact that that's what my dad read and I could connect to him with those stories. Um, be, and, and then later on more things came in, but it's, it, unless you have people to share it with, and it's, you know, it's different now with the internet, you can find your community everywhere. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to put the hours into books, it's lovely if you feel like it's not a completely solo mission that you, you know, that when you get to the end, you have someone to turn to, to go, Oh my God, that was amazing. Or wasn't this cool? Or what did you think of that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, th and that's, that's kind of why I found this community on Twitter and Instagram just where, everybody's just gushing over books and going, Oh my gosh, you have to read this. Oh my gosh, I want to read that. How did you get that? You know, kind of <laughs> stuff like that. And it's really neat just seeing how everybody flocks to certain things. And there's always a love for certain genres and you can kind of pick and choose where you want to be at any given time. And the way I did my blog and luckily I was able to get a few other reviewers that joined on was that, you know, we were like, basically just science fiction and fantasy. And then once they kind of tagged along, okay, I'm like, you know, I'm going to, I'm just still going to do some fantasy and some science fiction here and there, but I've been like on a, a real big thriller kick here recently. Oh, nice. Cool. Um, and, and a little bit of horror mixed in. And I've read some, uh, some early copies of some books that are coming out later in the year. Like I'm actually in the middle of uh, Josh Mallerman's bird box sequel called Mallory. Oh, cool. Uh, nice. And, um, and so you know, I, I can kind of take a back seat, see what everybody's enjoying and then know what to read next, you know, based yeah. on those. And then if I if I get anything, you know, pretty early out there, like I'm reading uh, The Kingdom of Liars by Nick Martell right now uh, uh -huh. from Saga. And uh, so like I'm like, OK, well, I can read that because it's long. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's still pretty early. Um, but, yeah, it's it's just so nice having that community because you always know there's a next book <laughs> and, oh, yeah. and you're not just turning around going, it, what in the world am I going to read? But it's so much, the interaction then is so much healthier than, you know, just individual reviews popping out or things that get filtered through some other kind of medium. It's like those conversations are, are real. And I think the, there's a bit more nuance than because, you know, it's all for, it's everyone, the, you know, you can write things that everyone that pleases everyone a little bit, but you hope that 
you know, there's that little bit of a gamer when you put something together, you generally want to do something a bit different. You want to share a little bit of yourself and that might really register with some people and not others. And these kind of nuanced conversations where it's, it's really about going like, is this for you? I think you'd really like this, but this probably isn't to your taste, blah, 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 can be much healthier than just the kind of aggregated scoring system that has taken over, you know, definitely the film world, you know, and, but a lot of the review world reviewing everywhere has been turned into something that makes it, the, the creative process and the kind of personal nature of that is starting to get very forgotten in the mass of, um, yeah, aggregated scoring systems, which are valuable, but yeah. it's nice when you see people looking for a bit more nuance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, like everybody talks about the rating systems and everything where you are basically rated on a scale from one to five. And if you're not yeah. five, then you kind of feel like, well, I'll try, you know. <laughs> well, that's and, – and as well, it's like – yeah, which is interesting. And it's – um, and because I guess in some ways it's nice that sometimes you go people would better look at that than they – if they stumble across, you know, the – you know, the, they might have still stumble across one other review out there that isn't as good as all the others out. So it's, yeah. it can be nice to average it out. But it's also – it does kind of miss the point in some ways. Yeah. It's been interesting to watch. I found it really – you know, this is the first time I've had something that's completely mine out there. Yeah. And I generally feel a lot of it's, you know, it, it is like it's all been really good and agree with most of the stuff out there. And it feels like, especially when you're writing the first in a series, mm-hmm. and the thing is, it is very interesting writing a fantasy book, but that is, you know, in my mind, it's like a noir detective story that happens to take place in a fantasy world. Yeah. And there seems to be very different reactions based on people who go in with the expectations of a fantasy book from Orbit, mm-hmm. as opposed to those that have maybe read some Chandler or, you know, have a real appreciation of noir and know that that's what they're going into. Like, I, I, I found it just first funny when I saw like a couple of early reviews that were counting the fights and counting the battles. Like that was, and treating it like I'd accidentally left them out as a mistake. As a per, you know, like it was just like, oh, I just forgot to put them in at the end, or like, oh, I didn't know that's what you do to get. I think it's like, oh, no, this is absolute. Like, this isn't a world and this isn't a style where that is going to solve anything. Also, it is, it's one guy walking the streets, kicking over stones. Like, and I have a real affinity for those books and I really love that feeling. And, to honor that world, you can't, you know, you can't then go like, oh, in the next week he's, you know, picked up a flaming sword and is, you know, taking on a battle. It's like, that's not who this guy is. And, but the people who appreciate that and you can tell have got a sense early on, like recognize the marker saying that's what this is and they know what they're in for, seem to have a much better time. But, but then it's also nice the other ones who are a little just, confused by it but seem to enjoy it by the end where they're like <laughs> thought they were going in for something it turned out to be something else but they you know enjoy the ride yeah. but yeah it's, it's interesting anyway i do actually kind of enjoy it just because it's the first time for me throwing it out there and seeing how people react yeah absolutely and you know you you have to kind of fault some people uh when they don't read the synopsis <laughs> and they don't yeah. they don't realize it's a pi <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's it. But I do think there is that it's, you know, it's still packaged as a fantasy, though. Yeah. And some people just go like, oh, orbit fantasy and yep. think that's what it's going to be. Or, yeah. And also sometimes that's people's taste. And if that's what you want, great. 
Yeah. But without saying too much, there is, and also I do know I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of fucking with that expectation a bit. I think there is partly the idea here that in a fantasy world, you do have certain expectations. And, but I have kind of then put a protagonist in a fantasy world that kind of struggles with the same things I do, which is that sometimes you want to get up the next day and just be a better person and do these things. You know, you go on a bed going, yeah, tomorrow I'm going to do this. I'm going to fix that thing. I'm just going to be better. And this will be the, be the beginning of a process where I'm going to be a great person by the end of it. And we just don't because of a whole bunch of internal awful reasons and battling your own brain and not getting over things in our past and then not believing that, you know, we're actually worthy enough to become better uh, and all those things. And so there is that, which means, and there is a, an element of the book that is intentionally disappointing. And so I think when you do that, you don't expect, like I, I it, part of even my mind, I'm like, it seems, it would seem strange I, the feeling I'm trying to give people at the end of, end of the book is not like, oh, my God, that was amazing. I'm going to hit five stars. Mm. It's a much more kind of unsettling, undercut, contemplative idea. So I think you know when you put like that kind of thing together, you it's interesting. You're like, oh, I'm going to write this and let's see where it tickles people's mind. It's not necessarily feels like a setup for them to <laughs> feel really amazing and run out and tell their friends and you know, it, it's, a, it's a, yeah, I don't know, trying to play with a different kind of feeling, I guess. I gotcha. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you kind of have to, I guess, break the mold a little bit. I mean, I think your, I think your debut and then maybe Dale Lucas's like Fifth Ward are um, kind of like the mm-hmm. only, I guess, kind of procedural fantasy novels that Orbit's put out the last couple of years. And, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, the majority of it's kind of like epic or it's, um, the, you know, they've got a few science fiction ones here and there. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where it, it kind of changes the pace for what's been coming out. And it probably just caught some people off guard because <laughs> they're, they're, yeah, they're just looking it at it. it might not be for everyone. That's yeah. it. And we'll say, just in case anyone's listening to this, like most reviews have been really great. I'm really yeah. happy where it all, you know, where, <laughs> where it all is. I mean, the response has been really amazing. But it is just um, – yeah, it is just interesting to pick some of them, those other responses up. But um, and also this is, you know, I've always seen this as the first in a, you know, a number of stories. And I, you know, I, I don't think I think it's I look, I love reading, you know, I, I, I think Pixar movies are amazing. And I go out, I haven't seen Onward yet, which is interesting because there's some similarities actually to Sunder City. But that kind of, you know, that whole, that perfect little story circle where we you know, someone gets presented with something, they think about it for, you know, 10% of the story we're going to go to, and then they head off on the journey and they, you know, get to this point. And it's kind of at a certain point, there's mainly, an, there's a little dip, but generally we're moving in, in one direction. Mm-hmm. I do think actual like self-improvement pretty much happens in a loop where we try and do something and we stumble and we get back almost where we started, but maybe just one step ahead. And then we try, and then hopefully you try again and do another loop, and that's now another step ahead of that. And that actually the process of becoming better and doing good and working out how we can be useful in this world, there's no direct line in that. And and I do think that's the kind of they're the kind of things that I think about right now when I try and go, how actually should I spend my days and spend my energy in this world we're in right now? 
Um, and so these books are really about putting those thoughts into using this world I've created to explore those things. And it, um, yeah, I don't know. It is interesting. That's it because it could be. I, I do understand that some people are like, "Oof, too dark for me." I just want to do his thing. I'm like, "Great, cool. I envy you." If this, you know, <laughs> if the if the things going on in Fetch's head don't speak to you at all. Uh, that's fucking great. Like you go be a great person out in the world. That's awesome. <laughs> but um, there's something cathartic for me about both writing this stuff and seeing other people respond to it that, um, yeah, that's really enjoyable. I imagine. Uh, so kind of before we get really into uh, Last Smile and Onward, uh, where do you typically find yourself writing? And I was going to ask you the question, how in the world do you find the time? But I know we talked a little bit off uh, off podcast that uh, that you're mostly writing right now, still doing uh, some you know acting gigs here and there, but mostly focused on your writing. But where where do you typically write at? Okay, yeah, well, with that, it's like the 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 frustrating but great thing about every acting job is they end. Uh, you know, there's there's very other unless you're on like one of those soaps, you know, that exist here and there. Every job is usually for you know maybe it's a week, maybe it's a few months few months maybe it's a few months every year but even in that you, there's a lot of time off that usually you're auditioning and scrambling to fill it so it's not a bad thing for me to act finish a job then and then i know hey i've got some cash in the bank and got a bit of time do some writing then look for the next one and keep that going and where i write look i've got i don't know how many beds i've stayed in this year already so what are we we're in you know still in the first half of march and it's God, it's maybe 30 different places I've stayed. I just, I'm bouncing around. I don't really live anywhere. So it's wherever I am in the world, I don't know. And often it's either sometimes propped up in bed or like my writing setup here, kitchen table. I've got an external keyboard and mouse. I've got my laptop propped up on a box so that it's kind of at eye height, which is just better for your back. And that's kind of my setup. I carry with, you know, travel with the laptop and the keyboard and set it up wherever I end up on wherever I can that isn't going to cause me too much back pain if I'm going to sit there for hours every day. Um, I do a bit in cafes and stuff, which can be helpful, but I generally like to kick things off as early as possible in the day. Like I'll try and, you know, get up at six and, you know, do a pot of coffee and get going. So usually using that clarity I feel I have in the morning as close to from bed to computer as possible is the best. I gotcha. Yeah. I was, I was about to ask, cause you said that's kind of your setup you go around with. I was going to ask if you uh, took your box with you. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, the box is often different. Sometimes it's books. Sometimes it's, you know, a microwave or something. This one's a, uh, this is the, I just got the headset I'm talking on now um, that I got so I could play some video games with my brother back home. Um, it's the box that that came in and that just gives it a little prop up, which, um, which helps. There you go. Um, so tell me a little bit about your writing process. I know obviously, you know, you've written the debut, you're working on book two and book three. Um, but kind of, do you plot everything out? Do you fly by the seat of your pants? Do you do a little bit of both? Yeah, a bit of both. I think the first one was a bit more by the seat of my pants just because I didn't know I was writing a book. I really started writing for me. I started – I always – look, I I had the idea of the world and of certain things. I kind of had all of Fetch's history in there. And then I wrote a short story that kind of involved the main chunk of this first book, that kind of case finding the uh, vampire professor. And I, I probably smashed that out over, you know – 
a couple of weekends or something when I was in Cape Town. And that became the frame. That became something I could show people that people responded to and liked. And from there, I expanded it and shrunk it and put more in and took more out and then started, you know, trying to get an agent and a publisher and, you know, got, they seemed to like it, but I was biting it. So I do another edit. And so that, I, I feel like I played that first one like an accordion that, you know, it started as just a bit of fun. And then I started going in and planning things and changing things. And, and that was really enjoyable. The second book I outlined like pretty intensively. Um, and I do think it's probably going to be a better book for it, especially if you're doing, you know, detective stories and things and you want intertwining plots for all to feel connected. I do think this second one feels more cohesive in that way. Um, and that's kind of what I've done. And, the, you know, the second one's all done and dusted now, you know, hopefully be getting started on the third now, but I've also, you know, planned that and outlined that pretty tightly. The things that you, I don't always know is the internal stuff going on. It's like, you know, I need to put all the mechanics in place and, you know, the, the certain little things I'll set up and the, um, and you know, the new elements that will come into the story in each book. But then I've, there's got to be enough room there for Fett to respond to things in his own way. And I think that's harder. Sometimes that's – I don't really get writer's block, but that's where I'll get caught if I realise that I pre-planned something in the plot that requires – fetch to react a certain way to what's happened or, or one of the other characters react that way where there's, you know, it could be the villain just as much where you've gone on. Oh, and then at this moment, they're going to do this and you get to the moment, you're like, well, they don't feel like doing that. You know, even you lined all the things up, but because of this, you know, they've had their eyes open to this or something else happened. That's not how they feel like reacting. So that's where things will often shift where the experience of the journey that the characters have gone on, has actually made them put them in a different place than I thought they'd be at that point in the book. And so I have to just adjust things accordingly. Mm -hmm. But um, as far as all the plot mechanics go and, you know, how the A and B stories will intertwine and all that comes together, uh, that's something definitely for book two and beyond that will be more planned out than the first one. So let's talk a little bit about your debut. So uh, The Last Mile in Sunder City, uh, it stars Fetch Phillips, who's a former soldier turned PI who tries to help the fantasy creatures whose lives he's ruined in a world that has lost its magic. So that's a heck of a pitch for me. But if you want to divulge a little bit more for those who haven't had a chance to read it yet. Yeah, good. We're, yeah, we've been talking around it for a while. But, um, you yeah, know, I think that, I mean, that, does the basics. It really is like the idea was first of all, taking like a Raymond Chandler gumshoe story and throwing it in a magical world where the fantasy has died. And so in this first book, he's, you know, and essentially as we learn, fetch is doing this because he promised another magical creature before they died that he'd stay and do some good. So this whole kind of man for hire routine that he's playing is a way of fulfilling that promise and But he's maybe doing it when we meet him out of the fact he feels he should, but not with the real, you know, gusto that would really be making a difference. Uh, so he gets this case where a, a professor who happens to be a vampire has gone missing and Fetch is hired to track him down. And that, with a couple of other mysteries, kind of get intertwined. And through him, we uh, are introduced to the world of Sunder City. Uh, through some flashbacks, we find out how this world came to be the way it is and how Fetch was involved in that. Um, but, yeah, but it's and it's kind of those two things playing off each other in this first little introduction. 
Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, I, I thought it was a fantastic debut, um, especially the world building uh, aspects and then the portrayal of Fetch himself. But what was your, uh, I guess, what was your inspiration for Fetch himself, and then what was your inspiration for the world of Sunder City? Yeah, so I think with Fetch, it was you know all those. I, I think what was nice about it is that yeah, I think at high school I was writing characters off that kind of noir PI archetype. And I really liked, you know, there's something about the aesthetic and it, it's not something that the hardball detective has done has been done so many times. But what I loved about Marlowe is I think there was this real string of romance through there that you also got in, you know, like bogey characters, like in Casablanca and things that you, know, you start going like the more cynical someone is, the more romantic they must have been at some point in the past. And so I liked that idea. But what I also liked is then by getting older and living a bit more you understand that that kind of jaded, cool, you know, masculine guy who's had his heart broken, so now he's a bit of an asshole, isn't actually that useful <laughs> out in the world. And it maybe doesn't make you the best person, the people around you. And so it was kind of fun to go back in and in some ways live out writing from the point of view of the character that I thought was cool when I was younger, but lean a little more into the reality of what it would like to be, what it would be like to be someone like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and how that indulging in that is quite problematic in a lot of ways. And it really isn't someone who you should aspire to be. So Fetch is that guy that was kind of a young idealistic dude who grew up in a sheltered world, then he went out and had his eyes opened to how beautiful the world could be. And through a couple of mistakes, now he's kind of had his heart broken and he's feeling shit, and, but he's just trying to keep going and do a bit of good in between his, you know, whiskey and his <laughs> self-flagellation. So it, it seemed a great way to explore a bunch of things going on in my head while living out a kind of aesthetic that I liked, that, I, or, that had always appealed to me. And then Sunder City um, is, yeah, was, you know, it, it fulfills a lot of those ideas about that urban environment that you put that kind of character in. Um, and, yeah, it's like, why why Sunder City? <laughs> I should know. It's like I feel like I've talked so much about Fetch and I, I, I probably had a better answer for this that I've, I guess now as my mind's on the third book is one that becomes all these other things. Um, I, oh, so the reason Sunder City actually is because of Fetch. Mm. And so going into it, like when I talked before a little bit about encountering some fantasy worlds where it felt like a lot of just, you know, the king of Gorg, you know, Gosdabon and the year this and the town of this and it was no way in, that Sunder City is really created for Fetch as in, because he feels like he's responsible for what's happened, everything he describes is has an emotional connection for him. And so it's there's no reason for him ever to describe anything just because, like, hey, I'll catch you up on this thing. It's all tainted with this awful, guilty sorrow that's just going on in his head the whole time. Mm -hmm. So once I kind of knew that, and you say that in a way that allowed me to kind of indulge in this, that partly the indulgence was one of the things being examined, but also it meant that every part of the world was part of him and part of his internal, you know, turmoil. Um, then those things kind of fed off, fed off each other. 
I gotcha. So, uh, kind of getting back to what the last mile in Center City is about, or what the the Fetch Phillips archives is about. For those that are, you know, kind of more geared towards your epic fantasy or your grim dark, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with this being more of a noir type novel, um, you know, if if I had to kind of say it's like something, uh, I don't know if you've seen or read Dan Stout's Titan Shade. It's, you know, it's like an urban fantasy noir where you've got a human and a, you know, creature working alongside each other uh, in a partnership to solve crimes in kind of like a fantasy world, but it's like kind of like a, it's almost like a Chicago or New York, I guess. Um, yes. But I know the, I know the way the Orbit pushes it, they kind of say that it's for fans of, you know, Jim Butcher uh, mm-hmm. or uh, Ben Aronovich, who did the uh, Rivers, Rivers of, of London. London. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, um, and so, I mean, would you, would you say that those like kind of give you somewhat of a feel of like how your book is kind of written uh, like, yeah. or, or geared towards those fans? Look, I, I'd say that there are definitely a lot of similarities. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd maybe say this is, it's, it's trying to make yeah try to say this in ways that don't sound like a shade on either way because it's not because <laughs> in some ways I'd say maybe theirs are a bit more fun mm-hmm. I do if if maybe that's kind of um like that that's maybe the point of difference here which is like well one both of those take place in our world and the magic is right. you know that's magic entering our world this is definitely you know another this is a uh you, you know a, a separate fantasy and, world yeah. With that has to have human that has to happen to have humans in there. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, so it's almost like more like if Middle Earth reached its industrial revolution yeah. and then the magic dies. Yeah. Um, but I also do think there is there's some great fun to be had with those kind of archetypes in those other books, mm-hmm. and then definitely Fetch is not having as much fun or um, maybe tripping along those archetypes in the same way. This is maybe examining a bit of the darker side of some of those themes that all. Oh, any kind of book that plays with noir and hard-boiled PI, um, you know, come across. Yeah. And I, because we're also in a, you know, that would be the point of difference. If you are, it, look, it, I do think if you like those books, you'd probably find a lot of things you like here. Mm-hmm. And if you're looking for something more epic fantasy, it's all still here. Yeah. And if you're, you know, so I reckon that it does actually it, but it's just dangling it a little outside your grasp. I do actually think that's the fun of it, that if you really love epic fantasy, there's a lot. What I like about the book is that, like it's all here, but you're not quite allowed to have any of it, or it's like you just missed it. Yeah. And I do think if that, if you think that might stir up some things in you, then that's, um, then that's kind of what I'm going for. And I think there is something really rewarding about that. Um, for me, that's and talk going back to the whole thing of it is, I do think that's for me really the impetus behind all this is that I do think the world like seems magical when we're kids, mm-hmm. and then as we grow up, we make these decisions and we try to be seen a certain way, and you turn around one day and the world doesn't seem that magical anymore, but you kind of know that it's your fault. Like if you decided <laughs> to hold on to that, if you lent into those things that made you feel good and, you know, or you hadn't, you know, just tried to seem cool, <laughs> you know, you might have been able to hold on to some of those things more. And, you know, it's not everyone, but it's definitely a feeling that I kind of recognized out there. So that idea that if you love epic fantasy, like 
so does Fetch, you know, and, that's, yeah. and so does everyone in this world. That's where they want to be. And there's a few books coming. So that I, that same driving force of, you know, finding the magic thing and saving the world and doing all those heroic actions, that's definitely part of the book. It's all still there. I'm just making a bit harder to get to that rewarding finale. Yeah, uh, basically the gist I'm getting from it is you're like that old fisherman in that Geico commercial that's dangling the dollar bill. <laughs> it's like it's like it's like I got you a dollar, but you're not quick enough to get it. <laughs> I I haven't uh, I haven't seen that, but it's exactly that. Okay, you need to Google amazing. it and watch it because it's exactly the same thing. <laughs> that, that's exactly it, and, that, and that's one of the reasons why I go back to that. Like people who comment on you know not you know, and this is only the, the few people who comment on the lack of battles in the first one yeah but you know very consciously in the first book there's a point where like fetch is getting geared up for some action and you know it's the audience you could be as well and go like okay here we go and then the reality of what it is like that's also a you know a question in here is like in all the books is like is grabbing a weapon and going out to fight something how useful is that in this kind of modern world? If you've got an idea where there's government and there's bureaucracy and there's people trying to get by and there's poverty and crime, but for all different reasons, like can those epic fantasy ways of solving problems help actually do any good in a world that switched over to something else? So, um, yeah, so it is that. It's Look, it's um, – and but, you know, as the books go on, things do have to get bigger, maybe not as – quick as would be immediately rewarding but yeah so i'll keep dangling that dollar bill for a little longer there you go <laughs> there you go well uh kind of speaking about next books so uh you did have a cover reveal on sci-fi now yesterday for book two which is called dead men in the ditch um mm. and it's actually due out on october 6th can you uh for those who have read book one without spooling book one can you tell us a little bit about what we can expect in book two Yes. Um, without saying too much, because I, oh, I'm really so few people have read this second book that it like I can't wait. You know, and, and there's a, you know it's all kind of finished before even the first one was almost coming out. You know, mm. and we uh, anyway. Uh, so essentially, after what happens in book one, uh, word starts getting round that maybe Fetch Phillips is really trying to bring the magic back. And so it puts him in a position where people are coming to him with, you know, rumors they've heard, with ideas, with things that they want for them. And he has to start examining whether he believes that's possible and whether he's the guy that could do that and, you know, uh, what that means for who he should become. Mm -hmm. And essentially then at the, and while he's considering all this, then he's called to a crime scene where someone has been killed in a way that looks pretty clearly like it could only have been done with magic. And from that point, we, you know, introduce both some new characters and have a bunch of returning characters. And Fetch has to essentially he begins by trying to find out how this murder happened in a way that he thinks was is hopefully not magic. So he can tell people that, you know, that's he's not the guy looking for ways to ways to bring magic back into the world because he doesn't yet believe that that's a possibility. So that's where we kick off. It's kind of a bigger book, but uh, kind of a lot more immediate and intertwined. Um, I, yeah, I don't know what else to tease with other than, you know, at a certain point a unicorn does come back, but not in the way you might expect. <laughs> well, you, I mean, you, you, you've got me. You got me hooked. So let's okay. go ahead. Go, you can go ahead and send a copy over. No, no rush, but uh, – 
Oh, well, oh, yeah, that's it. We've revealed the cover and, you know, it's all pretty much they're ready to, you know, for the advanced copies to be sent to the printers. So hopefully it's not too far away. All right. Wink, wink. Um, so, yeah. uh, <laughs> so, so since you sent that one off and, uh, you know, we're kind of gearing up for it. So, uh, I guess I can assume you're about to start working on book three. Yeah, that's the plan. Look, I've got the next couple planned out pretty tightly actually. So, you know, at the moment it's, it's always, you, you know, I want to find that good chunk of time to really sink my teeth in. So, you know, I'm in LA, which means my head's in the acting world at the moment and writing some other more screenplay stuff. But um, hopefully I'll be sinking my teeth in that third book soon because it's, you know, I've kind of outlined it all within an inch of its life. So it's ready to go. I gotcha. Um, so are you working on anything outside of uh, the Fetch Phillips archives currently? Um, nothing in novel. Uh, look, this, I've got, I've, once again, I've got some other things I'd love to dig into, but I think, you know, yeah, for the next book I write, it, we might as well keep it in the uh, Fetch Phillips world for a while. Yeah. Um, and some other things I can't really talk about yet, but, you know, with my having my toes dipped in the big pond of L.A. all the time, um, got some other kind of more screenwriting things that, uh, yeah, would be really cool to get happening soon as well. Cool. So, yeah, I'm pretty much balancing my days between, you know, some acting stuff, some screenwriting and some novel writing and, you know, a, a pretty much essentially who puts a check in front of me first gets to get the next bit of my time. So there we'll see what <laughs> awesome. Um, so, Tim, have you read anything uh, lately that you'd recommend to the audience? Uh, it's because I've been like doing heaps of auditions this, this time of year. It's mostly, you know, terrible to decent screenplays. But um, <laughs> uh, I almost finished uh, the audiobook of uh, Priest of Bones, which I'm really enjoying and really uh, that's been fantastic. And um, and it's been, it's been taking me for ages, but it's because I've been reading out the stuff. But the, the Bone Ships, RJ Barker, I'm loving, and it's very on brand with my pirate past. Yeah. Um, I'm loving it. It's just, uh, yeah, I, yeah, too many careers. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'm really enjoying that. So that's where I'm at the moment. I feel like I've been saying both of those things for the last month. But, um, yeah, essentially what I'm reading is, like, scripts for pilots in L.A., which, um, you know, there's some good ones here and there, but a lot, a lot of it's not that great. <laughs> Um, well, I, I know that Peter and RJ would appreciate uh, hearing that you're reading their novels. And uh, I actually did a podcast episode with Peter a couple of weeks ago. If you uh, want to go back through the archives and, and give I a listen, I started it's a good listening. One. That was my way of having a bit of an idea of what I was going into. So, okay, yeah, exactly. Awesome. Fantastic. And, and he's been really helpful. You know, he was one of the first people to, to read The Last Mile in Sunder City and yeah. say some nice things, which are on the book. So, I mean, that's been so lovely of him. I really appreciate it. He's yeah, absolutely. And I'll, and I'll have RJ on uh, toward the end of the year to talk about book two uh, and oh, the Bone Chip series. So, yeah, it's yeah, I, I would say it's on par with your past for sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Very on brand. <laughs> well, thanks so much. It's been great to chat. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. And uh, so everybody that's listening, uh, Last Mile in Sunder City is out now. Uh, book two, Dead Men in a Ditch, will be out in October. Uh, and then, like I said earlier, you can catch uh, Black Sails on Hulu in its fullness uh, if you uh, are interested in pirates and all the goodness that comes with that. Uh, but if you want to follow him on social media, you can find Luke uh, on Twitter at LongLukeArnold, on Instagram at LongLukeArnold, and you can find him uh, on his website at LukeArnold.net. 
Uh, but Luke, man, this has been a, it's been a pleasure. Um, you know, again, I'm not feeling quite as starstruck anymore, but I still <laughs> feel awesome having the chances to speak with you and, uh, and, and be able to talk to you about your book and, and your life. It's been, it's been a great opportunity. So thank no, you. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been great fun. Cheers, man. Right, cheers. For those of you who haven't had the opportunity to read The Last Mile in Sonar City, stay tuned for a clip from the audiobook presented by Hashtag Audio and read for you by the author himself. I hope you enjoy it. Do some good, Chid said. Well, I tried, hadn't I? Every case in my career had been tiresome and ultimately pointless. Like when Mrs. Habit hired me to find her missing dog. Two weeks of work, three broken bones... Then the old bat died before I could collect my pay, leaving a blind and incontinent poodle in my care for two months. Just long enough for me to fall in love with the damn mutt before he also kicked the big one. Rest in peace, Pompo. Then there was my short-lived stint as Aaron King's bodyguard. Paid in full, not a bruise on my body, but listening to that rich fop whine about his inheritance was four and a half days of agony. I'm still picking his complaints out of my ears with tweezers. After a string of similarly useless jobs, I was in my office, half asleep, three-quarters drunk, and all out of coffee. That was almost enough, the coffee. Just enough reason to stop the whole stupid game for good. I stood up from my desk and opened the door. Not the first door. The first door out of my office is the one with the little glass window that reads Fetch Phillips Man for Hire and leads through the waiting room into the hall. No. I opened the second door, the one that leads to nothing but a patch of empty air five floors over Main Street. This door had been used by the previous owner, but I'd never stepped out of it myself. Not yet, anyway. The autumn wind slapped my cheeks as I dangled my toes off the edge and looked down at Sunder City. Six years since it all fell apart. Six years of stumbling around, hoping I would trip over some way to make up for all those stupid mistakes. Why did she ever think I could make a damn bit of difference? Ring. The candlestick phone rattled its bells like a beggar asking for change. I watched, wondering whether it'd be more trouble to answer it or eat it. Ring. Ring. Hello. Am I speaking to Mr. Phillips? You are. This is Principal Simon Burbage of Ridge Rock Academy. Would you be free to drop by this afternoon? I believe I am in need of your assistance. I knew the address, but he spelled it out anyway. Our meeting would be after school once the kids had gone home, but he wanted me to arrive a little earlier. If possible, come over at half past two. There is a presentation you might be interested in. I agreed to the earlier time and the line went dead. The wind slapped my face again. This time I allowed the cold air into my lungs and it pushed out the night. My eyelids scraped open. My blood began to thaw. I rubbed a hand across my face and it was rough and dry like a slab of salted meat. A client. A case. One that might actually mean something. I grabbed my wallet, lighter, brass knuckles, and knife, and I kicked the second door closed. There was a gap in the clouds after a week of rain, and the streets, for a change, looked clean. I was hoping I did, too. It was my first job offering over a fortnight, and I needed to make it stick. I wore a patched gray suit, white shirt, black tie, my best pair of boots, and the navy fur-lined coat that was practically a part of me. Ridge Rock Academy was made up of three single-story blocks of concrete behind a wire fence. 
The largest building was decorated with a painfully colorful mural of smiling faces, sunbeams, and stars. A security guard waited with a pot of coffee and a paper-thin smile. She had eyes that were ready to roll and the unashamed love of a little bit of power. When she asked for my name, I gave it. Fetch Phillips, here to see the principal. I traded my ID for an unimpressed grunt. Assembly hole straight up the path, red doors to the left. It wasn't my school, and I'd never been there before, but the grounds were smeared with a thick coat of nostalgia. The unforgettable aroma of grass-stained, snotty sleeves, fear, confusion, and weak old peanut butter sandwiches. The red doors were streaked with the accidental graffiti of wayward finger paint. I pulled them open, took a moment to adjust to the darkness, and slipped inside as quietly as I could. The huge gymnasium doubled as an auditorium. Chairs were stacked neatly on one side, sports equipment spread around the other. In the middle, warm light from a projector cut through the darkness and highlighted a smooth white screen. Particles of dust swirled above a hundred hushed kids who whispered to each other from their seats on the floor. I slid up to the back, leaned against the wall, and waited for whatever was to come. Hope you guys enjoyed my chat with Luke Arnold. Guys, I'm, <laughs> I said I wasn't Star Trek, but I still am just a little bit. Uh, I thought that was just a, fin- a phenomenal chat. I, uh, yeah, I just got to breathe for a minute. Um, stay tuned uh, at the end of this week as I'll actually be chatting with a fairly recent addition to the podcast, uh, author Stephen Graham Jones. Uh, I know some of you that read a lot of fantasy and science fiction may not know who I'm talking about, uh, but he actually wrote my Number two book of last year. It actually comes out this year, but it's called The Only Good Indians. Uh, You guys, this book is just absolutely phenomenal. If you like horror or just emotional stories, it's simply amazing. Uh, It comes out in May from Saga. Uh, He also wrote a a novella for Tor.com called Mapping the Interior, uh, which is just, it's just so gripping. Um, He just writes super emotional super heartfelt uh, books and I'm, I just can't wait to chat with him. Uh, I'm probably gonna be gushing a little bit on that episode. Uh, and this weekend I'll be talking to John Mars uh, about his upcoming book, what lies between us uh, and about the upcoming Netflix series for his book, the one. And then on Sunday, a uh, surprise guest, Peter Kenny, uh, which if you guys have listened to the Witcher audiobooks, uh, you would recognize his voice as the audiobook narrator. Um, so I know all of you, all of you who've been watching the Netflix series uh, and are definitely now interested in the books, uh, would be excited to, to to hear him. Hopefully, we can have him do maybe a short little excerpt. I think that'd be pretty sweet. So, but guys, just thanks as always for tuning in, and sorry for rambling on this last bit. I know I don't normally, but uh, I just can't seem to stop. So, uh, but tune in the rest of this week, and yeah, cool. Later.